together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Once again, we thank you for the sunshine and uh, the birds singing and the flowers starting to come up and open. It reminds us that in each and every season of this life, you are with us. On the blustery, windy, rainy, cold days like yesterday, and on the pleasant, uh, warm, beautiful days like today. Uh, we thank you that it doesn't matter. It, you, you never change. You never uh, change towards us. Uh, you, are, you are always with us. Your word is always there to guide us, instruct us, convict us. Uh, it is uh, there for our every piece of instruction and rebuke and correction and a uh, way to live our lives. We thank you for it. We thank you that it is always relevant uh, to us in our walks with you, no matter what time and culture we live in. And we, th we give you uh, all of our thanks for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a Screen Rant article online uh, dated from 2016 entitled, The 15 Worst Kept Spoilers in Movie History, where a key twist in the storyline that was supposed to be a, oh, I didn't see that coming uh, experience, moment of shock for the audience, was ruined for the majority of movie moviegoers before they even entered the theater. It may or may not be surprising that three of those on the list were from Star Wars movies. And even the latest one on the list is already eight years old, so you've had plenty of time to see it. You're not allowed to get mad at me. And it's on the list, 15 worst-kept spoilers, so you probably already know what it is anyways. The hype surrounding Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, way back in 1999, was unprecedented. In fact, Star Wars fans even spent their hard-earned money on going to see another movie in theaters that apparently was just bad, leading up to its release just to catch the first glimpse at the first trailer for it. For anyone younger than 18 here today, that's what you had to do to watch a never-before-seen trailer before the advent of YouTube. The distributor of the movie, 20th Century Fox, released the soundtrack to the film a few weeks before the film's release, which was quickly bought up by avid fans. However, what everyone at Fox failed to account for was the title of a track on the soundtrack that was called Qui-Gon's Noble End, which led on to millions of fans before they even flocked to the theater that Qui-Gon Jinn would meet his noble end in the movie. In the 2015 Star Wars film, Episode 7, The Force Awakens, closer to our time now, news that Han Solo would die in it was leaked well ahead of the movie's release. It was a risky move by director J.J. Abrams, who wanted to establish Solo's son, Kylo Ren, as just as villainous and therefore the worthy successor of Darth Vader. The author of the Screen Rant article wrote that it was probably for the best that this bombshell was leaked well before the film hit theaters for, quote, Han dying by his own son's hand ruined the childhood of many an audience member, and some may have needed time to come to terms with this before they entered the movie theater, end quote. But probably the 
most famous spoiler of all Star Wars movies, and st indeed all of cinematic history of all time, is the spoiler that ruined the 1980 Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. Today, if you don't know the line, Luke, I am your father. You've got some catching up to do. It's been, it's been a long time. Apparently the fact that Darth Vader was Luke, Walker, Luke Skywalker's father was an incredibly closely guarded secret all the way up to just before the film was released. No one in the general public had any clue what was coming until the actor who wore the Darth Vader costume, a guy named David Prowse, not James Earl Jones, who provided the iconic voice, spilled the beans right before it was released. George Lucas was furious and has apparently never forgiven Prowse, even reportedly banning him from participating in any official Star Wars conventions. I mean, it's been 43 years. It's time to let it go, George. <laughs> the account we're going to start talking about today is right up there, where if you've read your Bible, you already know what's going to happen by the time we get to verse 44 of chapter 11. Since this account is so involved, we're only going to start on it this morning. But that's okay, because again, you already know how it ends. It's one of the most famous and therefore already spoiled accounts in Scripture, and we'll start to see why it's one of the most famous and most powerful accounts in Scripture. Furthermore, we'll see what profound impact it still has on us today. I mentioned last week how the first two-thirds of chapter 11 is, in John's Gospel, the last major miracle that Jesus performs before the events immediately leading up to his last Passover or the Last Supper and his crucifixion and resurrection. And it just so happens to be the last death-to-life miracle foreshadowing in no uncertain terms and symbolism what was promised to happen after Jesus' death. We ended our passage last week with Jesus returning to where the first steps of his ministry began, back where John the Baptist was ministering, who declared about Jesus way back when, Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That transitioned to this last death-to-life miracle we're starting to talk about today, which then transitions to the events of what's called Holy Week in the life of Christ. Coincidentally, Holy, Holy Week kicks off next Sunday with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey known as Palm Sunday. In fact, we'll see albeit just a little bit today, how inextricably tied to Palm Sunday and the following Good Friday this account today is. So all of this factors into and leads up to our passage today. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 11. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the back of the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 11. We're going to start in the first two verses here. Uh, or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But John chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, we read this. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. This is laying down the framework of the setting of what is happening, which will factor into all the future messages on this account. 
uh, will have. So we'll spend some time on this background this morning. John's Gospel is the only one of the four that includes this account of Lazarus. As such, as noted by one biblical scholar, this Lazarus of the village of Bethany is only mentioned here in chapter 11 and in chapter 12 in all of the New Testament. Now, here, John next mentions this Mary as the one who anointed Jesus' feet with oil and wiped them with her hair, but he doesn't actually bring up that account until the following chapter. So why does he phrase it like this? It was the Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with oil and wiped his feet with her hair, even though he doesn't get into that until the very next chapter. I mentioned just a, a second ago that the Apostle John is the only one who includes the account of Lazarus, but two of the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, contain the account of Mary anointing Jesus' feet with oil. John reiterates it in his Gospel, but remember this. John, through the Holy Spirit, wrote his Gospel about 20 to 30 years after Mark and Matthew were written. Those Gospels had been circulating around the early churches for decades already. So most Christians at this point knew that story, knew about Mary anointing Jesus' feet with oil. Therefore, John could simply refer to that connection in verse 2 of chapter 11 and then elaborate it on, on it in chapter 12 and already assume that everybody knew what he was talking about. This was the same Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10 where Martha was busy serving Jesus and running around and Mary chose to sit at his feet and listen to his teaching. This is why John only needed to specify that the Bethany he's referring to is the one that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in, only a couple miles away from Jerusalem. That's going to be a key factor in Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Getting back to our story, Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, is sick. This is obviously a serious illness. For his sisters sent messengers to Jesus while he was presumably still on the other side of the Jordan River where John the Baptist used to preach, verses 3 through 7. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Okay, so what do we learn from all these verses here? We learn that Jesus loved this family in particular. This isn't to say that he didn't love anyone else. But he could clearly see, both physically and inwardly, how much faith they had in him. Martha had run herself ragged to make sure his needs had been taken care of, and Mary had a simple awe and faith in his teaching. We don't find out about Lazarus' existence even until here, but we can assume he had a similar heart. All three had put their faith and trust in who Jesus simply was along with his message and mission, which we talked about last week. With no strings attached and no challenging misunderstanding as to what anyone else thought he was supposed to be and do as the Messiah. 
Now, Jesus' words in verse 4 are packed with meaning here. Firstly, when we read in verse 6 that Jesus stayed where he was for two more days, as pointed out by biblical scholarship, it wasn't uncompassionate, as it could be misconstrued by some. It wasn't to wait until Lazarus was dead, until Jesus started making his way to Bethany. By the time Jesus finally arrived in Bethany, we find out by jumping ahead to verse 17 that Lazarus had already been dead for four days. So most likely, what this means is that Lazarus had died by the time the messengers had even arrived to bring word to Jesus that Lazarus was just sick. By the time they got to Jesus, he was most likely already dead. That's profound then. When Jesus says upon the messengers bearing news that he's sick, even though he was already dead, that this sickness would not end in death. He was already dead. So how could he say this sickness would not end in death? Jesus knew what he was going to do. God the Father had revealed to him to stay where he was for another two days so that when Jesus arrived in Bethany, there was absolutely no doubt that Lazarus was dead. So much so that all the burial preparation and rites had already been performed and he had already been in the tomb for three days. There was no doubt about it. So when Jesus says that the sickness would not end in death, even though it already had by that point an earthly death, what he means is that he means that the sickness that brought upon that death would not result in permanent death at least not at that point, physical death, God would be glorified because the Son of God would show that he has authority over life and death. Not only physical life and death, but would shortly be given the authority over spiritual life and death. Ironically, that authority over spiritual and ultimate life and death would only come as a result of his physical death and resurrection, and that would be a result of the Pharisees' paranoia at Jesus raising Lazarus back to life from death, and that would be the ultimate glorification of the Son of God, our only hope for ultimate life from death. See, this isn't a random story that shows Jesus' power and authority. And we can look at it and be like, oh, that's cool that Jesus did that. This isn't just a random story. Everything Jesus says in this account is hugely symbolic of his authority over his own imminent death and resurrection. Remember, he said, I have the authority to lay down my life on my own terms, and I have the authority to take it back up again. And all of this would happen very soon after this experience. In fact, it's this event that we're starting to talk about this morning that is the last straw for the religious leaders to have no doubt that they wanted Jesus dead and would stop at absolutely nothing to have that happen. Two days later, in verse 7, we read that Jesus lets his disciples know what the plan is. They are now going back to Judea. But remember, and this is what's so important about reading Scripture in context, what situation did Jesus, did Jesus just leave there that we talked about last week? The crowd of Jesus' own people holding up rocks in his face, ready to pummel it into meatloaf, which God the Father had Jesus miraculously escaped from. Once again, 
That's exactly what Jesus' disciples bring up, essentially saying, are you nuts? Don't you remember we just barely escaped from there the last time? Verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus' response is veiled, but it's something we can take to heart every bit as much. Verses 9 through 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Jesus uses symbolism here, but according to biblical scholarship, Jesus is giving a profound statement about God's sovereignty over our lives. In Jesus' context, there were 12 hours in a day to do work outside by the light of day. The typical first century Jewish work day lasted from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., which followed the amount of daylight available to see and work well. Jesus was assuring his disciples that his work day of ministry was not over yet. It would be over soon by the Father's will, and it would be the dark of night when he is crucified. But anything that would happen to Jesus is according to the will of God the Father, who determines when one's work day of life ends. Jesus knew it still wasn't time yet for him to die, so he had no fear of going to Bethany so close to those who wanted to kill him in Jerusalem, only a couple miles away. In that way, Jesus would never stumble into the darkness of the night of death of his own ignorant accord or anyone else's, since he was following God's plan for him. He was walking in the daylight of God's plan for him. In the same way, by extension to us, the body of Christ, for who he is the first fruits, Jesus' words in verses 9 through 10 give us the same assurance. If you are following God's plan of light for us, we can know that when it's his timing and when it's time for him to call our soul home, it's according to his plan for us. That gives us peace, doesn't it? And that gives us peace in the death and timing of that death of our loved ones, too. There's an old Billy Graham quote that says, The will of God will never take us where his grace cannot sustain us. My favorite interpretation of this is that while we're not supposed to just do stupid stuff to put our lives at risk, you're invincible until it's God's plan to take you home. We're not to live our lives in fear of death. You're invincible until it's God's plan to take you home. If you are staying as sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, who always and only acts according to God the Father's will, you don't need to fear anything. Nor how or when you'll die. When it's God's timing for it, we need to trust him with that and be ready for him to take us home. And because we're freed from that fear, we're freed to do the work God has for us to do during what is left for the work day and daylight he's still given to us here. Oppositely, in connection with verse 10, 
If you don't care about following God's word and his Holy Spirit's leading according to that word, you're not showing that repentance and surrender to Jesus, and you don't have that peace of verse 9. What do you have? Well, what you have is it'll still be God's will for when you die, but he won't be taking you home. Instead, you'll succumb to the ultimate darkness of night that Jesus is talking about in verse 10, where Jesus says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a description of the indescribable physical and emotional torment you'll be in. You'll go to a temporary holding place of torment called Hades, never to escape until you're resurrected on Judgment Day to be cast into the torment of the lake of fire for all of eternity. Those who have repented of their sin, trusted Jesus as the Savior from that sin, and made him the king over the rest of their lives, their soul immediately goes into, at this point, Jesus' presence at the right hand of the Father. We talked about that a little bit more a couple weeks ago. Someday, it's looking more and more every day like it'll be very soon, Jesus will bring back all of those souls he's been keeping safe all these thousands of years and reunite them with their not only resurrected bodies, but also glorified bodies. And I bring all of that back up again because Jesus next says to his disciples in verses 11 through 15, then he said, and after that, that, this he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. The term fallen asleep was a euphemism for physical death, just as according to biblical scholarship, every time you see the word, the word Sheol in the Old Testament, it's a euphemism for death or the grave. The Apostle Paul uses it numerous times in his New Testament letters to refer to those who accepted Jesus as Savior and King before their earthly death, that they are those who have fallen asleep in Christ. The disciples, who always take what Jesus said in an on-the-surface way, think Jesus is merely talking about how Jesus has fallen asleep in his illness. Seeing that his disciples just aren't getting what he's referring to, Jesus comes right out and says, Lazarus is dead. Combined with what he's just said, Jesus is saying that he's going to go to Lazarus and raise him back from that earthly death. So taken with everything I brought back up from a couple of weeks ago, Lazarus had died an earthly death due to a fatal illness, much like has happened to humanity ever since sin entered the world. Upon that death, his soul went to be in heaven with God the Father, presumably since Jesus was still on earth at that point. What Jesus is about to do shortly is a bit of a taste, albeit not in the same form as his bodily, as his bodily resurrection, which in turn is the first fruits or indication of what will happen to us when Jesus comes back for us at the rapture. 
Lazarus' soul will be sent back to earth from God's presence, reunited with his body, and be healed and restored in a human and physical way. Lazarus will then die an earthly death again at another point down the road, so this won't be the same body as Jesus' glorified resurrection body, nor our raptured bodies. But it's a taste in foreshadowing of what was to come very soon. Jesus says at the end of verse 14 that he's glad that God the Father planned all of it this way so that his disciples' faith in him would be strengthened. The hope was that his disciples would remember this at Jesus' death, even though we know what happens then already too. And that hopelessness is already present at this point, before Jesus' disciples have even taken one step towards Bethany and the greater Jerusalem area. Verse 16, Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Didymus means twin. So Thomas had a nickname even before his more famous Doubting Thomas nickname. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, Thomas still wasn't understanding anything Jesus was saying about being in God's will and that nothing was going to happen to him or them yet, or even what Jesus said was going, or even what Jesus said he was going back to Bethany to do. And unknowingly, Thomas was giving a sort of prophecy, in a way, of what would happen to most of the disciples giving up their lives for the kingdom of Christ after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. But again, it would all happen according to God's sovereignty, will, and timing. Jesus finally arrives in Bethany in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Again, what most likely happened is that shortly after the messengers bearing the news of his sickness left Bethany to where Jesus was, Jesus waited two days, and then it took him and his disciples a day to get back to Bethany. What we can deduce, well, why we can deduce this, is that in the heat of the Middle East, bodies would start decomposing very soon after death, and they would be prepared for the grave and laid in the grave very often on the same day someone would die. That's why, again, we can conclude that Lazarus had already died by the time the messengers even reached Jesus. This was the setting that Jesus walked into, which was customary for that culture and time period, verses 19 through 20. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Mary, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Is pointed out by one biblical scholar, the fact that Bethany was so close to Jerusalem with Lazarus dying and Jesus raising him back to life was no accident in God's plan. Obviously, we know there are no accidents in God's plan for he works everything out perfectly in his sovereignty, but it's cool to see how all of this connects. So there are lots of people in Bethany at this point mostly coming from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to participate in the Jewish duty of comforting those who are mourning the loss of a loved one. For the first week of bereavement, seven days after a loved one would die, the Jewish people would sit in their house and simply allow themselves to mourn. 
This practice was called sitting Shiva. And that term may sound familiar to you because it's still practiced by many Jewish people in some ways today. Back then, while the bereaved would mourn, their neighbors, friends, and family would visit, prepare meals, and take care of domestic chores. This would free the bereaved to go through mourning their loss, which was very helpful in processing all of it and releasing it to God's sovereignty. Verse 19 is describing this practice of sitting Shiva while friends and family helped in comforting and in taking care of everyday tasks. All these people who are around to comfort Mary and Martha would soon play witness to one of Jesus' greatest miracles and spread that news like wildfire throughout the surrounding area. When Jesus returns to Bethany after raising Lazarus from the dead, the crowd swells from those in neighboring Jerusalem for Passover, all having heard about that miracle, and go out to mob Jesus and his disciples with palm branches while Jesus rode a donkey towards Jerusalem. So here, the seeds of that crowd that we're going to revisit on Palm Sunday begin with who is in Bethany helping Mary and Martha sit Shiva. What starts out as mourning turns into shock and joy. As Jesus approaches Bethany, verses 20 through 22, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And now you might read this and think, why did only Martha go? Was Mary mad at Jesus because he didn't show up to heal Lazarus when he was still sick? As noted by one biblical scholar, if we know these sisters from the account everyone already knew from Luke chapter 10, when Martha ran around serving Jesus and Mary sat at his feet to listen to his teaching, we already had to have a bit of a glimpse at their differing personalities. Martha was a go-getter. She was always active. And Mary was more of a contemplative person. Furthermore, we just talked about how it was still the seven-day mourning period of sitting Shiva, so Mary was simply following that custom. Martha was not content to just sit around, however, and went out to meet Jesus. Now, when we read Martha's words, she's not throwing shade at Jesus or expressing disappointment at him or questioning why he took so long to get there in a challenging way. What this is as has been noted, is that this is a confession of faith from Martha. She knew her brother was dead before the messengers could have even reached Jesus. She knew that. She knew that was the cold, hard truth. Martha's words are a complete and wholehearted trust in what Jesus could do in his power and that nothing was impossible for him to do. It's also a confession of faith in him as the Messiah and the Messiah's prophetically close relationship to God the Father. She didn't know what he might do. She had expressed her desire for what he could do, and she knew that he could do it. Nothing could change the natural state of death her brother was in unless Jesus stepped in. She knew that was the only hope Jesus' response has a dual meaning, verse 23. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now Martha understands the second meaning of Jesus' statement, as we'll look at in the following verse in the near future. She knew the Old Testament teaching of the resurrection of those who trusted in God's promises, including the promise of a coming Messiah, Messianic Deliverer, in the end days, as noted by one biblical scholar. Just one of these is Daniel 12, too. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. We already talked a little bit about this resurrection. Without going into too much detail at the moment, there are two resurrections in the end times. Those who put their faith in the coming messianic deliverer and those who put their faith in Jesus as that deliverer will be a part of the first resurrection unto eternal life. Those who never did will be resurrected at the second resurrection after the last stand by Satan and his armies to be judged and condemned to the lake of fire for all of eternity. Martha already understood these two resurrections and knew that Lazarus would be a part of the resurrection unto eternal life. But Jesus knew what God the Father had planned for him to do very shortly here. And that would be to connect him raising Lazarus to physical life as a foreshadowing to his authority over his own imminent physical death and physical resurrection, thereby being the foundation to our spiritual resurrection from spiritual death and physical resurrection from physical death. You've heard me mention this word several times in this message, so I hope you see that the theme that runs throughout this first part of this account is God's sovereignty. That's the running theme throughout this first part of this account. As we've looked at in messages recently, God the Father has a plan for the entire universe. What will happen on earth all the way up to its destruction and he will and who he will have grace on to call to salvation and who he won't. His plan includes all of it. A lot of this is a hard pill to swallow for us as humans, even as believers in Jesus. But it also gives us a tremendous amount of peace in this truth. God is the one who chose us, or didn't choose us, for salvation in his plan, determined even before he created the universe. God is the one who created us according to his plan, and gave us our souls in that plan. God is the one who included in his plan that the Son would put on humanity and take our place for our sin and provided a way for us to be rescued from the hell we all deserve in our sin. God is the one who will call us to repent of that sin and put our faith and trust in the Son for salvation. And in the timing, he determined for us a long, long time ago. God is the one who will provide for us, strengthen us, grow us, comfort us, call which of our loved ones he's chosen to have faith in him, take those loved ones to be with him in his timing, and take us to be with him in his timing. Everything in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones is all up to him. And he calls, all he calls us to do is to trust him in all of it. 
especially those times that don't make human or earthly sense. Because why? It all still makes sense to him. Even though, like we started out this message with, we all know the spoiler of what will happen, that Jesus will raise Lazarus back to life. At this point of the account, Martha had no clue. All she knew was that she could trust Jesus and that whatever God the Father's plan included, Jesus had the power and authority to accomplish. May we have a similar level of faith that Martha had. That even though we may be heartbroken, we have things in our lives we wish were different, either hadn't happened or happened differently, we still live out a faith that says to Jesus through his Holy Spirit, even now, when all hope seems lost, I know that whatever God's plan includes for me and my loved ones, I will trust you with it. I have requests, and I'm going to leave them with you. I trust that you have the power in the Father's plan to accomplish whatever miracle, provision, healing, comfort, and peace in my life you deem best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what this passage teaches us about your sovereignty. May we have a faith similar to Martha's, that even in our most heartbreaking of times, times where we're struggling, wrestling with things, maybe from our pasts, past traumas, things we're wrestling or struggling with you over, may we have wholehearted trust in your plan that you're, you've always been sovereign over our lives. You are redeeming everything in our pasts. You are healing all the past trauma we have. You are redeeming us from our sins. You are making all of us more and more into the image of your Son. May we have that same trust in you for ourselves as well as for our loved ones, that it's your plan. You call the shots. You're the one who, de who, who gives us what you deem best for us. You will redeem us. You will transform us. You will heal us. You will comfort us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.